The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature. If you are feeling unwell, please seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any advertisements promoted throughout the podcast are not endorsed by the presenter or any of the guests interviewed. Hi there, welcome to MediTalk, a medical podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You're with Danae. According to the Cancer Council, prostate cancer is the second most common cancer diagnosed in Australian men. It is the third most common cause of cancer death. In fact, one in six men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer by the age of 85. So today on MediTalk, we speak with reconstructive urological surgeon, Dr. David Sofield, to provide us with an update on prostate cancer. Prostate cancer incidence varies a lot across the world, but in Australia, we have, um, in world terms, quite a high incidence of prostate cancer. Um, Somewhere around one in eight to one in 10 Australian men will be diagnosed in their lifetime with prostate cancer. And um, it's now... um, the third most common cause of cancer death in Australian men. Gosh. So, uh, Why do you think it is so common in Australia? That's a really good question and a lot of research is going into why. Um, no doubt there's a genetic component and then also a lifestyle component. So, for example, if men move from a low-incidence area such as Southeast Asia or India to Australia, within about a decade their risk goes up to match that of um, people who've lived here all their lives. And then what about risk factors for prostate cancer? What are they that men should be sort of keeping check of? Yeah, so the risk factors, um, obviously your cultural background, as we just talked about, um, and then genetics. So anyone with a family history should have a, a lower threshold for being tested at a younger age, and we'll talk about screening and testing. Mm. Um And then modifiable risk factors, the biggest one is probably obesity. Um, So, you know, every every patient asks me about diet. What can I avoid eating? What can I eat to stop me getting prostate cancer? Actually, more the problem is the obesity epidemic is related to many different cancers, including prostate cancer. And it's very clear in men that I see with prostate cancer, overweight and obesity is is a very common Hmm. So Association. Why, do they often then ask, well, why does being overweight have anything to do with cancer? How hmm. are they related? It's very interesting, and um, I'm not a you know I'm not a, a genetic scientist to be able to yeah. tell the exact reasons, but um, it's similar in men and women. So if you look at breast cancer, bowel cancer, and prostate and uh, uterine cancer as well, all of those a very clear and strong association. So whether it's the dietary things that lead to the obesity or some change in the metabolism of hormones that occur with obesity. For example, men who are overweight or obese process, the fat cells actually can change the nature of their hormone balance such that Mm. they get more conversion of um, um, their sex hormones to to estrogen so they have relatively high estrogen levels. Now, normally oestrogen, you actually expect to reduce your risk of prostate cancer. So it's a really complex interaction yes. that really no one knows the But we should know answer, it exists. And then it we exists should... definitely and it's one of the, the probably strongest modifiable risk factor men and women can uh, look at for all cancers in reducing their risk. There's different scenarios. So a one-off, um, you know, a guy who's 40 whose father had prostate cancer at 75, let's say, and no other family history, 
their risk is probably increased a little but not dramatically versus the guy who's got his father, all his uncles and two brothers with prostate cancer, he's at very high risk. So it does vary depending on the extent of your family history, the age at which those guys contracted prostate cancer. But the general advice is if a first-degree male relative has had prostate cancer at a young age, and by that I'd probably mean 70 or less, a particularly aggressive disease that needed treatment, then um, really as soon as you're aware of that, it's worth thinking about your risk and thinking about screening. And But probably the youngest people need to think about screening is probably 35, something like that. You know, my youngest patient I've operated on for prostate cancer is 36. So he was so it diagnosed. does occur in younger men and he was diagnosed on the basis of a family history and early screening. So... Um, uh, I my advice to, and I always talk about this with men who've been diagnosed about their sons and brothers. I recommend if there's if it looks like a strong family history, probably age thirty five. If you're not there already, then if you're a bit above that, whatever age you're at, get started. A baseline PSA. If at thirty five your PSA is extremely low, then you can probably wait to forty, have it checked again. If it's still very low, maybe forty five, you start having it regularly. There's no set absolute correct um, guideline there, but those are general principles that as soon as you get over 40, the cancer certainly becomes significantly more common. So first-degree history, anyone over 40 certainly should be checked regularly once a year probably. And then more importantly or as importantly, if they're going to get checked, they should have a low threshold then for being referred for an opinion from a prostate cancer expert or urologist to then further evaluate their risk. Um, so we do see, unfortunately, you know, guys who've taken that proactive approach, gone for a PSA blood test, it's a little bit elevated but not above the so-called normal for their age and we'll talk about this in more detail, mm. I'm sure. But And then, you know, they're advised, oh, that's fine, whereas in fact it's not. If it's, if it's above the average for your age and you've got a family history, early on you should be thinking about the possibility of cancer because the earlier it's picked up, the, the, better, the better the options, the better the outcomes. So then what's involved in screening? Do you think there's sort of still misconceptions about screening? So you're talking, yeah. you're talking, you've just talked about a blood test. So it can mm. be as simple as you have a blood test and mm. that then gives you a PSA rating. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. So, um, so PSA, the prostate-specific antigen blood test, is um, – for all its um, negative publicity that it sometimes attracts, is really a fantastic screening test for uh, cancer of a very specific organ. And really it's unprecedented and still unmatched in all of oncology in terms of a blood test that is so specific to disease of one organ. And its accuracy in picking up cancer is actually quite good. Um, certainly if you compare it to a mammogram, and, and I often talk when I'm talking to patients and we're often comparing the situation of breast cancer and prostate cancer because they occur at very similar incidence levels in Australia in similar age groups in men and women and the outcomes are actually quite similar. So in terms of the number of deaths a year of women with breast cancer between 50 and, say, 75, 80, and men of the same age for prostate cancer, the number of deaths every year is almost identical. It's around two and a half to 3,000. So um, <clears throat> there's some parallels there. But if you look at the screening test, uh, I think you can't argue that having a simple blood test is a lot less intrusive and unpleasant than having a mammogram, for example. And, in fact, the PSA test 
is if it's elevated or abnormal is much more likely to represent a prostate cancer than an abnormal mammogram is to represent breast cancer. So it's actually a very accurate test. The problem with it is that there are false negative, uh, false positives, meaning um, there are a lot of men whose PSA might be a bit elevated, but it's not due to cancer. It's mm. always due to prostate disease. So if your, if your PSA is elevated, really there's three things going on, three possibilities, cancer being the most important, benign enlargement being the most common, and then inflammation. So if a guy's got a urinary tract infection, for example, or recent surgery or a catheter, those any intervention around the prostate will put the PSA up for a little while. So um, as a as a screening test, it's it's you know really a minimal insult to the guy to have done. It is very accurate combined with appropriate you know clinical evaluation, and um, so now typically. Uh, screening involves um, a blood test done by the GP. The patient should then see the GP with the result. That result will come back with a number which will sit somewhere within the range for the patient's age. For example, in a man of 40, his PSA should be less than 2.5. Uh, 40 to 50, generally 2.5 to 3.5. 50 to 60, perhaps 3.5 to 4.5, and, and then above 60, it and we consider higher levels, so a guy of 80, 6.5 would be considered appropriate. Those numbers don't matter too much. They're more for your GP's interpretation. But what they reflect is that as men get older, their prostates naturally get bigger, therefore there's more PSA. And what these numbers are about is trying to minimise the number of further invasive investigations whilst maximising the number of cancers that are diagnosed and minimising the number of cancers that are missed. So they're in a... They're a guideline or a range to try and fit the likelihood of cancer based on the PSA to the patient's age, which then guides further evaluation. Mm. Having said all of that, in a guy of 50, whilst the range might be up to 3.5, say he's 55, say, Mm. normal PSA might be up to 3.5, but actually the average for his age should be 1. So if you've got a family history and your PSA is 1.9 or 2 and you're 53, that's not normal, that's not fine. That needs thinking about. Probably you don't have cancer, but the risk is certainly higher than if your PSA was less than one. It needs interpretation, and that's one of the issues with PSA. A one-off PSA test on its own, given to someone who doesn't understand the intricacies of it, it's not so useful. But in the hands of someone who understands the, all the implications of it and the ins and outs, then actually becomes a really powerful screening test. What's important is if you're going to, and it's an individual decision about whether you have screening or not, and there's one of the issues has been over the years due, in fact, to some very poorly conducted overseas um, studies, there's been a bit of a swing a- away again from screening, although it's coming back to a more common sense approach now. But what's really important is that men who choose to have screening um, that it gets followed up properly and gets acted upon. So any abnormality should either be, so for example, if your PSA is slightly elevated and it's your first one, then the appropriate steps by the GP would be to say, okay, here's the number, let's repeat it in six weeks just to confirm that it's not, you know, um, some transient rise, which you can occur, and if it's still the same or higher, then certainly referral to a urologist for a discussion. And I'm very happy to see people with low PSAs. I'd much rather see that than a guy who's been... Mm having his PSA followed, so-called, for five years and it's going up and up and up and then I see him when it's 25 and he's got a really advanced cancer and I still see that 
every few weeks. Is that right? So there's a sometimes a disconnect between the the process of actually doing the test, but then reacting to the test is actually more important or as important as doing the test in the first place. Yeah. So it's really important that guys are empowered to um, insist that that happens, you know. And then can you explain benign enlargement? Because yep. I've actually known friends that have had a PSA and they've gone, I don't even know what benign yeah, enlargement yeah. And they don't really often get it fully mm. explained to mm. them by the GP. Yeah. And so it would be great if you could explain yep. what that means. Yeah, so the prostate sits just under the bladder. It's part of the urinary tract, although its primary function is reproductive, so it produces the semen. That's what it's for. But because the urine goes through the middle, the urethra goes through the middle of the prostate, it has an impact on urinary function as well. So in virtually all men, certainly all men with testosterone, so normally functioning um, testes who've got normal testosterone levels, almost all men from perhaps 40, 50 onwards will experience some degree of benign prostate enlargement. The prostate just starts to grow bigger, more cells in the prostate. They're not cancer cells, though. So a cancer cell is something which is a cell that has uh, a number of features that differentiate it from a benign cell. So a benign cell grows, it it replaces um, cells that went before it. It's the same as those. You may get increased numbers of them slowly over time in, an, in a tissue, but they don't have any ability to multiply rapidly. They don't, um, they can't travel anywhere else. Whereas a cancer cell can multiply in uncontrolled numbers and has the ability to invade blood vessels or lymphatic channels and spread elsewhere and set up satellite tumours elsewhere, multiply independent of the original organ and independent of the normal DNA controls over growth. So then you get benign growth. So there is something that goes on and every day patients ask me, why does that happen? And every day I have to say I've got no real idea, but... Clearly it's something related to being exposed to testosterone through your life and then probably as that testosterone levels change with age, something happens in the prostate where the cells start to multiply in number slowly. Mm. And they particularly grow in the central part of the prostate surrounding the urethra, whereas most cancers, 90%, occur in the peripheral part of the prostate. So developmentally or embryologically there's two distinct parts to the prostate, the peripheral zone where cancer occurs and the what's called the transition zone or the central part of the prostate where most of the benign enlargement occurs. And so the benign enlargement is what gives rise to symptoms. So, again, another common misconception is I don't need screening because I have no symptoms or I can't have cancer because I'm not having trouble peeing. Mm. Well, to have trouble passing urine from prostate cancer means a very advanced prostate cancer. It's invaded the whole prostate and probably into your bladder as well. So 99% of men I operate on for prostate cancer would have no symptoms from the cancer. They may well have symptoms from their benign enlargement, which can happen at the same time, and most guys with cancer have got a bit of enlargement happening because these two things happen at the same age. So benign enlargement is just that. It's just an increase in the number of normal prostate cells, which is a normal feature of ageing in men. Probably very similar, again, in women to the development of fibroids in the uterus, which are almost invariable in women as they age as well, and and the tissue, and you look under a microscope, is actually quite similar. So then as a urologist, what would you? What are the options for, for men and are, do they have to do anything about it? Or is it still important to come and have a chat with a <coughs> urologist about that diagnosis? Well, it is because that diagnosis is only made when you've excluded cancer. 
in a guy with a raised PSA. So many men with benign enlargement won't have a particularly raised PSA. They'll just come with symptoms and we're not really thinking about cancer in those guys and we'll treat the benign enlargement on its own merits. But if someone's referred with a raised PSA, that can't be attributed to benign enlargement until essentially they've had a biopsy to prove that. Mm. Mm. And that's why prostate cancer is a little bit scary because it sounds like, you know, you can men can have prostate cancer and not have any signs of Oh, definitely. Symptoms. Most don't. Most have no symptoms. And I guess that comes back also to the things about screening, which, again, has put a lot of people off over the years, is the examination of the prostate. Yes. Rectal examination, you know. It's always some people joke about a bit, but it's it definitely puts people off. Actually, it puts GPs off too. Doctors, mm-hmm. believe it, don't enjoy doing rectal examinations for the most part. Um, and uh, patients certainly don't either for the most mm-hmm. part enjoy having it done. So... It's still um, a really important part of the evaluation of a patient's prostate cancer risk, but PSA really has superseded it in terms... PSA is a lot more accurate. So, you know, there have been studies done to, to show that even experienced urologists probably get it right 50% of the time when they examine a patient. It's probably not quite the right way to describe it. In fact, what it means is most prostate cancers at an early stage you can't feel. They're still definitely there, they're still dangerous, but you can't feel them. So again, a bit like the symptom side of it, by the time you can feel a cancer, it's often invaded outside the prostate. Mm. So rectal examination is, for me, a really important part of the workup of a patient, but I do it at the time of a biopsy. I, to be honest, seldom do it in the office because... A guy comes with a raised PSA and my decision is, does this man need further investigation to look for cancer, which would involve a proceeding to a biopsy? That decision is not changed at all. If I examine his prostate and it feels benign, it's really not a, not going to stop me doing further evaluation mm. because I know that the great majority of men, again, that I operate on with prostate cancer, I can't feel that cancer. And, in fact, you don't want to feel it. By the time you feel it, you're probably operating a year or two too late. And so are there no signs and symptoms that men should look out for? Essentially, they just, if they have got a family history of having prostate cancer, then they, you know, maybe need to go and have that chat with the Mm. GP and start screening earlier. And then if they haven't, then by their, by the time they're 40, they really should be having those chats. Thinking about it, yeah. And probably from the exact age at which you start screening people who don't have a family history is not proven or set in stone, but you know, I would say probably at 40 is a good idea to get a baseline. And have a good physical all-over check. Checking for everything else as well, you know. At 40, have a baseline and if you're thinking about your cancer risk, are you overweight, are you got other issues that might increase your risk in the next 10 or 20 years of a cancer. So 40 is a good age to start. Get a baseline. If it's very low, then you can probably wait to 45. It's still very low. From 50, perhaps you do it regularly. If at 40 it's at all elevated, as we've said, get it evaluated there and then. With a family history, you probably do it more frequently from 40. One thing that's changed significantly in this process in the last 10 years and certainly in the last three or four years uh, really has become mainstream is the use of MRI, Mm. what's called a multi-parametric MRI. It's a prostate cancer-specific MRI scan in the evaluation of a patient. So the standard now... When I, and I'll see f- at least five men a day with this scenario. The GP does a PSA. If that's elevated and they're going to refer to me, I would say one in 
50 of those now has actually had a rectal examination by their GP. So GPs are not doing that either and I'm not at all concerned about the fact they're not, um, as long as they're referring on, you know. Um, so most guys will have had a raised PSA, get a referral, and then before seeing them I'll arrange an MRI scan. So when they come to see me, they've got the PSA and they've also got an MRI scan. The value of the MRI is, it, look, it tells us a lot of information about the prostate and the risk of cancer. The first thing it does is tell us about the size of the prostate very accurately. So immediately if a guy's got a slightly raised PSA and a really big prostate, already I'm thinking, okay, there's a good chance benign enlargement is his problem. Um, and then within the prostate itself, the MRI process allows the radiologist to attribute um, a score to the prostate or to specific areas of the prostate um, and that score relates to the risk of a cancer. So without going into too much detail, it's graded from one to five and the higher the number, the higher the risk of a cancer and it really is quite accurate. So if you've got a five on your MRI, that's the highest risk category, somewhere around 80, maybe even pushing up towards 90% of those guys are going to have a cancer at that spot. If it's a one or a two, most do not have cancer. So that's really useful and has now become mainstream. About two years ago it became um, rebated by the government, so it's the cost of it, which was prohibitive before, has come right down and um, people can get that done quickly now, so they'll get it done within a few days or a week of and it's the request. It's very accurate. It's non-invasive. And what that's done is two things. It's it's firstly because the, the, the definitive test, as we've mentioned, for diagnosing or excluding prostate cancer is a biopsy. The only way to be sure is get some tissue out to look at under the microscope and see. Um, but what MRI has done is two things. Firstly, in those men where the MRI suggests they need a biopsy, where there's a high-risk area, it's increased the accuracy of the biopsies. Previously, we did them blind. So we do it under ultrasound control. So during a biopsy, we're looking at the prostate with ultrasound. But that doesn't tell you anything about cancer. It just shows you the anatomy and where you're putting your needle. So now with MRI, we can match that up and we can say, okay, there's a lesion there that's high risk on the left-hand side of the prostate. We can target that really quite accurately. So the accuracy of the biopsies have gone up and the number of biopsies, number of negative biopsies we do has gone down because now if a guy comes and let's say his, his prostate is three times the normal size and his PSA was five, not too elevated, and there's no features to suggest cancer on his biopsy, I usually won't biopsy that guy you know, whereas he would have had one before just based on his PSA. And we'll follow that guy and only biopsy him if something changes, if his PSA keeps rising or his MRI in the future changes. So it's really, that's been a, the biggest shift in the last decade, I would say, in terms of the screening and diagnostic process. That's one of the big shifts. And while we're talking about a biopsy, we may as well, I guess, give a bit more detail about that. So what a biopsy involves is a procedure done in hospital usually, um, and certainly in my practice, they're all done under an anaesthetic, so there's no awareness so or discomfort at the time. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, and essentially uh, a very fine needle under ultrasound guidance is passed into the prostate. We, um, as a standard, would take 10 or 12 samples in a systematic fashion across the prostate and then a couple of extras wherever there was a lesion on an MRI. One of the big changes recently, the last two or three years, has been the advent of um, or the move away from doing this through the rectum. So it used to be we'd put a needle through the wall of the rectum into the prostate. Um, prostate's very easy to access through the rectum, but obviously the problem is infection. And this was another thing that was caused some angst about 
having biopsies both from the patient and from the urologist as well because, you know, if you got sick from that, it could be very bad. Um, we've now moved and most people have moved across now to doing what's called transperineal biopsy. So we now go through the perineum, the bit of skin just behind the scrotum. It's very easy to sterilise that skin and the risk of infection has virtually been eliminated. Very, very rare now. It's gone from probably 3 or 4% down to 1 in 10,000 or something like that. It's, so that's been a big change as well. Um, and it's very safe and you're in and out? It's safe. A it's a 15-minute anaesthetic. You can be in and out of the hospital in an hour or two. I can have a result in 24 hours, you know. So it's a it's a really quick process and um, minimally invasive, minimally, you know, there's no real discomfort during the procedure at all because you're asleep and afterwards m- really minimal discomfort. Some guys will get a bit of blood in the urine for a f- couple of days. They will have heavily bloodstained ejaculations for the first several times because the prostate makes the semen, as we mentioned. Blood gets dissolved in it so it looks a bit dramatic but it's nothing to worry about it's not dangerous or infective and that soon passes away. So that's that's the, the screening, ultimately the screening process now is PSA, referral if it's abnormal, MRI, if that looks uh, suspicious, biopsy, if it doesn't look suspicious in many cases, just to follow up PSA six months later, maybe a repeat MRI 12 months down the track if you're concerned. And the rectal examination for the most part from the GP side of it is is gone from the picture. I rarely examine the prostate at the first interview in the rooms either. I do that once when the patient's asleep as part of the biopsy. And the reason I'm doing it is because if someone's got a cancer, it's actually a really good test for evaluating whether it's able to be removed or not. So if I can't feel it, then I know we're really looking good for surgical removal. If I can feel it, again, is it stuck to things around or is it going to be okay to take it out? Those are the things I'm looking for with the rectal examination more than has he got cancer or not. It's more about staging that cancer. And then what about treatment options? So we've really talked a lot about diagnosing uh, prostate cancer, but what about the varying treatment options that um, men might be hearing are available now? Yep. So there's a range of treatment options and they really depend on a number of factors and the factors include the age and health of the the guy himself, um, what the nature of his cancer is. Is it uh, low-grade, non-aggressive? Is it high-grade, aggressive, or is it in between, which most are? Is it localised to the prostate or has it spread somewhere else? So they're all the things we evaluate with our MRI and our biopsy and clinical examination. And then once us, once the guy comes back, you know, a few days after his biopsy to look at the results, if he's got a cancer, then it's a discussion about what's the best treatment for this cancer and what's the best treatment for you. And those two things you know, obviously have differing uh, priorities. So, uh, again, a big change in the last decade has been a move to, wherever possible, avoiding treatment and going to what's called active surveillance. So when I started my training, you know, 25 years ago, every prostate cancer was removed. In fact, paradoxically, we removed the low-risk cancers because they did really well after we cured them all with surgery and the high-risk cancers we tended not to operate on. That's completely turned around now. So now all the cancers operate on are intermediate or high risk and many of them are high risk cancers and by high risk I mean aggressive or advanced cancers and operate on very few of the low risk non-aggressive cancers these days. Um, So what if a man just doesn't want, you know, they don't want to just be under surveillance? Do you ever get cases where men go, 
actually. Absolutely. <laughs> that's not so, going to be for me. I no, just that's wouldn't. right. And it's always a decision a decision for discussion mm. between myself and the patient and his partner. And um, So if a guy comes with low-grade cancer, let's say he's got a small cancer, one or two samples only positive, and it's a non-aggressive cancer, and people might have heard of a thing called the Gleason score mm. or Gleason grade. Gleason was the pathologist who developed the system. It's a little complicated, but it's a very useful system which tells us about how aggressive the cancer is, basically. And a low Gleason grade is favourable and a high Gleason grade means aggressive and most are in between. So what's very clear is that men with a very small amount of low-grade prostate cancer will almost certainly die of something else other than their prostate cancer and therefore subjecting them to surgery or radiation, we'll talk about these in a minute, is over-treatment in many cases particularly in older men, say 70 or above, with a very low-risk cancer, you know, their chance of dying of that cancer rather than something else is very, very low. So in that scenario, I always offer them active surveillance as one option. And now in Australia, I think the figure is about 40% of cancers diagnosed will go into active surveillance. Um, and it's interesting too, as I've got more comfortable with that concept, so more patients that stay on it. It was always an option, but I was always very uncomfortable with it before. Mm. Ten years ago, I was quite reluctant to put people on it and so they, they probably picked that up from me and not many guys stayed with it. Now I've got a lot of patients on it and they will do, they do very well. But it is, uh, it's not an easy process. It's an active process. It's not just forget about it. So it means a six-monthly checkup. There's a blood test every six months and there's stress about what's the result going to be and is my cancer getting worse. There's repeated biopsies from time to time and there's repeated MRIs from time to time, and then over time a proportion of guys will convert from surveillance to treatment. And there's always a risk hanging over your heads that you might treat too late and the cancer might in one of those six-month windows escape or become less treatable. And there is some local evidence from our own database in Western Australia that that can occur. So it's always, you know... Um, it's easier just to go ahead and treat, mm. to be honest, some, for me. Yeah, because you know, some men I'm, I'm sure would, risk, right? yeah. And there'd be some <laughs> men, I'm sure, that think, you know what, I feel better mm. knowing that that yeah. cancer is in, yeah. you know, out of my body, yeah. I'm so, sure. Yeah, it's true. And there are some men who will say, any cancer, I just want to get rid of it. And if that's the case, I'm very happy to treat them. But that's really a very small number nowadays. More would prefer not to have treatment if I'm suggesting to them that it's safe not to. So there's a lot of guys we start on that treatment. And, in fact, sometimes it goes a bit far the other way. I've got, I was just talking to a patient earlier about it. There's four or five guys I'm looking after at the moment who are, who are continuing that surveillance against my advice. Their cancer is not really suitable. And there are very clear guidelines on what's a good cancer for that. And you get a few guys who latch onto that idea and just want to, understandably, but probably... It's not in their best interest to, um, from this cancer point of view, they continue to monitor a cancer that I'm pretty uncomfortable monitoring. But, again, that's their decision, you know, mm. and I can't force them to have treatment. So, and eventually most of those guys will come around to it. And I suppose treatment. it's up to your own discipline because it does mm. active surveillance, as you said, is active. It's not being complacent yeah. at any yeah. point in time where you that's think, right. you know, because a year can go by sometimes and mm. you think, where'd that time yeah, go? Exactly. Have I even actually had my PSA? Yeah. Really? yeah. Well, I do find the compliance is very high. 
So, Oh, that's good. It's not difficult and to get people to comply with it. And typically if someone's doing well after two or three years, I'll get them back to their GP and it'll just become part of their annual or Medical. six-monthly GP medicals to keep an eye on that, you know, once they declare themselves to be someone who's at low risk ongoing. So mostly you know in the first couple of years of that process which way it's going to go. Mm-hmm. So the ones who are going to progress do so usually pretty early on and you get on and treat them. And the ones who after three or four years nothing's happened, nothing's probably ever going to happen. Um, so that's active surveillance. And then you've got... Um, treatment where you're trying to cure the patient, we call curative intent therapy, and there are two ways to cure prostate cancer, and that's surgical removal or radiation therapy. Um, obviously, I'm a surgeon, so I most of what I do is surgery, although I do refer quite a number of patients for radiotherapy. So maybe to look at radiotherapy first, who would I recommend mm. for that? Um, um, and radiotherapy can take a number of different forms, and that's evolving rapidly, and there's some really great technology now to make it more targeted, more accurate and less toxic than it used to be. Um, and the patients who, to me, go, get sent for radiotherapy are the very elderly men, so typically, you know, 85 and above. I mean, I've operated on people in their mid-80s, maybe late 80s if they're exceptionally fit, but people with significant other health problems at least, let's say, um, who are at high risk for surgery. Um, and the other problem is if, if you operate on elderly men, their risk of incontinence is significantly higher too, although not dramatically so, but it is a factor. Um, and then there's the men who've got a cancer that's already spread somewhere else who I'm not going to cure with surgery. Many of those will end up having radiotherapy combined with hormone therapy, which we'll talk about in a sec. Um and then there's a group where it's a locally advanced cancer, so if it's invading the bladder or something like that, giving symptoms, that small number of patients where that is generally radiotherapy because surgery is not going to be able to get rid of that cancer. So all the others, mm. usually the starting point is surgical removal. Now that's the case in Western Australia, probably most of Australia. There are some areas within Australia where radiotherapy is actually the most common treatment. Why not have radiotherapy, I guess, is the other question. Mm. And my concerns with it are probably three things. The first is that in the long term, it's probably not as good at getting rid of their cancer. So if you look at men two years, five years out from treatment, very similar good response rates for surgery and radiotherapy. If you look at 10 and 15 years, then you start to get more men with recurrence after radiotherapy than you do after surgery. Those differences are actually relatively small, but they're, they're significant. So if a guy's 50, he's thinking 30 years, right? If, if the guy's 75, well, 10 years might be all he's looking for. So that varies with the patient. Um, a second problem with radiotherapy is that if you have radiation and it's not successful, surgical removal after radiation can be done, but it's very difficult. I've done a relatively few of them and none of them really had great outcomes. What's that? It's because those tissues are inevitably very much damaged by the radiation. That's how it does its work, mainly by um, at a microscopic level um, damaging the blood supply to those tissues so it, the tissues have not, don't have good blood supply. And it's not just the prostate. However accurately it's given, and particularly in the older regimes, it's getting better, but the older regimes there was quite a bit of scarring around the bladder, the rectum and so on. So surgery became really pretty difficult. Um, 
And then the third thing with radiation is the complications of radiation. So, again, in the first year or two or three, it's pretty rare to have any issues at all. But all urologists have a group of patients they look after who are just miserable. Both the patients are miserable and they make us miserable to have to look after the problems they present with because it's very hard to do anything for these guys. So the problems they get are severe scarring of the bladder, of the urethra, which can block off. Um, that, that can lead to obstruction and to repeated bleeding from the bladder. And then there's a whole other group who get problems with the bowel as well from the radiation. Again, with time and the evolution of these new radiation technologies, the, the latest one is something called the cyber knife, which is very focused on the prostate. And there's some things we're doing now, um, placing a thing called Space Saw, which is a gel cushion that's injected to lift the prostate off the rectum. And that's been shown already to give a significant reduction in rectal problems from the radiation. So I'm expecting over the coming years those problems will get less, but they are certainly significant and when they occur they're very hard to correct. And like I say, all urologists have got a number of guys they look after and it's the thing you dread seeing because you know that this poor guy's in for a long long haul of difficult problems that you can't do much about. Um, so for those reasons... Um, my preference generally in a man who's fit and well with a significant cancer that I think is removal is to remove it and keep radiation as a second-line treatment. So giving radiation after surgery if it's needed, and that would occur if the cancer was locally invasive and seemed to be getting out past the margins of the prostate. Then it can be given actually with less, far less issues. It's surprising people get less problems when you're not having to give such big focused doses to the prostate. So... There's a number of guys I have who will go off and have radiation after surgery. So it's quite appealing to me and to the patients that they've got a backup option, mm. whereas radiation, they're kind of, it's done and that's it. Um, now, that's not at all to say radiation, radiation is not a good treatment for the right patient. It's an excellent treatment. And most of the radiation oncologists, if they were referred a 55-year-old guy with a, you know, easily removable cancer would tend not to offer them radiotherapy. In fact, recommend go back and have surgery and see me if you need it later. That's that's how most of the you know the good, good, the good radiation oncologists would approach that. And that's a good relationship, isn't it? It's a really good relationship we have between us. So I think that's and it's really sort of important. patient first yeah. focused. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'm forever, you know, regularly, regularly sending patients for an opinion, for their own peace of mind and their own education to help them in their decision-making process, I'll send them to the radiation oncologist knowing full well they'll probably turn around and say, have your surgery and come back later if you need it. So let's talk about surgery. Mm. Um, how effective is it and what are yep. the types of surgery? Are there different types of surgery available? Yeah. So surgery in the main is um, removal of the entire prostate, so it's a radical prostatectomy. And, and again, a common question is why don't you just take out the tumour? Mm. And the reason for that is two things. Um, firstly, the anatomy of the prostate doesn't lend itself to taking a piece out and then repairing it, so you can't really... Is it an all or nothing? Yeah, if you take a chunk of it out, uh, you can't really put the rest of it back together. It doesn't work like that. Secondly, you can't see the individual cancer. You don't want to see it, in fact. So, and again, a common question at Dave too, how did the cancer look? Well, the answer is always I didn't see it. I stayed as far away from it as possible. You don't want to see the tumour. It's inside the prostate. And if you get in there, you've made an error. Um, and then the third problem is despite the biopsies and the MRIs, there's often more cancer in the prostate than what we knew about going in. 
So if you just removed half, for example, thinking it was all on the right, almost always there's some on the left. Um, I guess as an aside, there's a there's a, some new therapies called focal therapy um, which are being developed. Some of these have been tried over the years but probably the most um, uh, common one now, that's still not common, but the, the one that's probably making a place for itself is um, something called the nano knife. Mm-hmm. It's not in Western Australia but there are some centres in the east doing it. Um, and what this is, a guy who's got a small cancer that's evident on a MRI, not too high a grade, not too aggressive, and they'll put a needle into that cancer and run a, essentially run an electric current through it to create heat and destroy the cancer cells that way. So it's called focal therapy. And, you know, I've had a few patients go and have that. In fact, I'm just about to see my first one come back who's had it and he's got more cancer now and now he wants his prostate removed. Is that um, possible? Well, yeah, I think so. Uh, and I've spoken to the chap who treated him who's done that about 20 times. He's actually gone back and taken out the prostate and said it's definitely more difficult than a, you know, than a first, first up time, prostate yeah. but not as hard as after radiation, so somewhere in between. So we'll see. Um, so that's focal therapy and it, it's an emerging technology. The limitation of it, again, is that you don't know about all the cancers are in the prostate. So you can only treat the ones you can see. And um, so I think that's a potential or definitely a problem with it. Uh, in the long term, we'll see, you know, how And what about goes. The, the type of surgery that yeah. you do? Do you want yeah. to explain yeah. that? And so. what, what, why do you love it so much and why that type of surgery? <laughs> <laughs> um, what are the benefits to Yeah, so, so radical prostatectomy, removing the prostate, uh, in its entirety involves... Um, and using robotics. Yeah, that's right. Well, there's a number of ways it can be done. You can do open surgery, laparoscopic or standard keyhole surgery, and then robotic-assisted keyhole surgeries now, the way most people who do a lot of prostate cancer surgery would, would operate. And over my time in training and, and work as a specialist, I've done all of those um, you know, as a sort of evolution. All of them... All of them achieve cancer clearance with similar degrees of accuracy so or success. So if the cancer is confined within the prostate, then about somewhere around 90 to 95% of the time that entire cancer will be removed. If the cancer is already breaking out of the capsule of the prostate, there's a capsule around the prostate, if it's already getting through that, then that success rate declines to probably 50 60%, something like that, of complete removal. So whether you do open surgery, keyhole surgery or robotic-assisted surgery, that, that main aim of actually clearing the cancer is actually very similar. With open surgery, the vision's difficult. With laparoscopic surgery, it's better, but it's only two-dimensional. And the big advantage of the robotics in terms of vision is three-dimensional vision and that the surgeon has control of the camera. In keyhole surgery, an assistant controls the camera. And it's quite dramatic when you go back and do a keyhole surgery operation to see how much that camera shakes and moves around as this poor assistant junior doctor's trying to hold the camera still. With the robot, that camera is absolutely still and it's fully under my control, so I see what I want to see in 3D. And so that just makes identifying tissues and structures and placing sutures and cutting and things so much more easy and accurate. The next thing is blood loss is very much reduced. So if we go from open surgery to robotics, the average blood loss in an open surgery is still around 700 mils to a litre. used to be many litres, so 
when I started training, every patient had to pre-donate three or four units of blood over the month before, which was all given back to them during the operation because they were bleeding so much. That's improved and the, the guys still doing open surgery do lose less blood now than they used to. But still the figures, published figures, are around a litre, which is significant. For robotic surgery, typically 100 mils or less. So the transfusion, is, blood transfusion is virtually eliminated now in, unless something goes terribly wrong, but touch wood. I've never given a transfusion to a robotic surgery patient. Um, less risk of infection because you haven't got an open wound, um, so you're not getting bugs into the abdominal cavity and you haven't got a big wound to get infected either. You do have a number of small, in, small incisions, but wound infection is quite uncommon. Um, and then thirdly, the thing is dexterity. So the instruments that we use in the robot have um, on the end, they're, they're, they're basically like two human wrists, so mm. it has twice the amount of degrees of freedom, so-called, as the human hand. So, And it's incredibly powerful, strong at grabbing things and so on, and there's no tremor. It takes all the tremor out. So, And actually it's a, mis, it's a misnomer to call it a robot. It's really what's called a slave machine. So it doesn't do anything independent of the surgeon. So, Because people might think when you yeah. say the word robotic, ah, what are you actually yeah, doing? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So <laughs> but you are controlling. It's really a very sophisticated power tool. So I'm sitting remote from the patient a couple of metres away at the console, which is connected via cables to the robot, which is holding the instruments, which are inserted into the patient, which I do at the beginning. And then I uh, have some uh, finger pieces that I operate and whatever I do with my hands, the instruments in the are translated by the robot to the So it couldn't operate without you, essentially. No. And in fact, as soon as you pull your head out of it, it's it freezes. And then finally, the the other part of the radical prostatectomy is you've got to do a reconstruction at the end. So we've got to join the bladder back to the urethra with sutures right down that deep dark hole and there's not much room to move and you're trying to accurately sew these two things together. Um, and uh, it makes that so much easier. It's it's taken that from something that used to take maybe an hour with laparoscopic surgery down to a few minutes, and it's more accurate. And that means people can have a catheter after surgery for less time, less complications of urine leaking through that joint. And so, how, how yeah. long are men in and out of surgery? Meaning, um, yeah. is it a day? Do they stay in hospital a day mm. after surgery? Yeah. Or? So, the process is. Typically two hours of surgery, two nights in hospital for my patients, and then they'll have a catheter draining their bladder, splinting that joint for about 10 days. Now those numbers vary. Some surgeons get everyone out the day one. I probably one in one in five of mine would go day one, the rest go day two. Most people I don't think are ready the first day. Um, but some people have a protocol where that happens. Some people leave the catheter less time. There seems to be a minimum amount of time you can leave it before before your complication rate starts going up though. So people have brought it down to three or four days and their complication rate goes up. So I've settled on about 10 days as a, a, a time frame that most people can put up with but minimises the risk of problems when that comes out. And the main problem is that either the urethra hasn't healed yet and then there's a leak and you form a collection in the abdomen which can then lead to a whole cascade of problems or there's swelling still there and when they take the catheter out it all closes off and they can't pee. And then getting a catheter put back in is not very nice or very easy. So 10 days is my my standard. Um, and then how long after surgery would mm. a man know how the surgery went? Yep. You know, often probably they'd want to know straight away whether you got the mm. cancer. Yeah, or, that's yeah. right. Yeah, so there's always that conversation the day after about did you get it all and 
It's usually, uh, well, it looks like looks that way and you do have a good idea. But then really, really what's critical is what does it look like under the microscope and that's available usually within about five days. So that's taking a bit of pathology. Yeah, so the pathologist slice the whole prostate up, look at every bit of it and they're very thorough with that and we tell us about the margins, is it contained, has it spread. Sometimes you'll take some lymph glands out as well to look for signs of spread. Um, probably that happens less often now than it used to but... Um, yeah, within about five days they know the pathology and then the next step is six weeks after surgery having a PSA test again. So we come back to PSA. PSA, once the prostate's removed, is incredibly accurate. So if there's no prostate cells in the body, there should be no PSA. should be undetectable. It takes a few weeks to get there, mm. but once it does, it's a really accurate way to monitor the guy after. So that's the ongoing monitoring. So if you get an, a clear, clear margins, cancer contained within the prostate, on your pathology and then at six weeks your PSA zero, you're really in an excellent prognosis category and relatively few of those guys will relapse oh, that's from then on. Yep. Yeah. And what about erectile dysfunction? Let's mm. let's talk openly and honestly about yep. that because I'm sure a lot of men that will listen to this, that's probably their biggest issue with probably pursuing surgery. They might mm. think, oh, I'll yep. have radiotherapy because then my nerves will be spared. Um you know, can you talk to that um, yep. erectile dysfunction sure. and how you preserve those precious yeah. nerves? So the two, there's two critical things, life uh, quality of life issues after prostatectomy or any cancer treatment is erectile dysfunction and, and urinary incontinence. Mm. But we'll talk about ED first as you brought it up. Um, and to be honest, erectile dysfunction is the reason active surveillance exists, to go back to that. If people weren't worried or there wasn't a risk to their erectile function, or their incontinence, but more importantly, erectile function, we wouldn't do active surveillance. we just take them all out and then we'd have 100% cure rate of these low-risk cancers and that would be great. Trouble is there's a significant risk of erectile dysfunction with any treatment for prostate cancer and that includes radiation as well and this is something that's perhaps not Do you think that's a well myth then that people think, oh, I'll go for the radiation route yeah. because it's, you know, then I won't yeah. be at risk of losing. Well, that's the thing, yeah, so, and they're quite different. So the reason erectile dysfunction occurs after surgery is disturbance of the erectile nerves and these are very fine little nerves which are attached to the sides and back of the prostate and some of them run into the penis and in simple terms operate the valves that let the blood in to cause an erection. So they're not sensory nerves, so sexual sensation doesn't change. Um so, that, again, this is one of the big advances, certainly in my own experience, my own hands that robotic surgery has brought, is a much better rate of recovery of erections, much better ability to see those nerves, identify them and gently dissect them off the prostate due to that improved vision and better dexterity. Um, <clears throat> nonetheless, even in the best-case scenario, there's no 100% guarantee of erectile recovery. So there's a few things to think about. Firstly... The average age of a guy we're treating for prostate cancer with surgery is around 65. At 60, 60% of men have got erectile dysfunction if you test for it. Mm. So already we're treating a group of guys who've got quite poor erectile function in many cases, not all but quite a, quite a few. And then if they're overweight? All these things <laughs> all add these up, right? Risk so, yeah. yeah, and they may not really even be aware they've got erectile function. There's been a gradual decline, you know, things are still okay. Mm. But then you add in a surgery like this and it can tip the balance and they fall off the cliff and suddenly got no erections at all. So that's a big issue. The younger the guy is, the better the chance of erectile recovery. So a guy in their 40s, 90, 90 plus percent will recover a good erection if they were fine before. 
man in their 70s, probably a third or something, a half maybe. Um, into that mix is the nature of the cancer when it's diagnosed. So if it's very small early cancer, then we can save those nerves much more aggressively because these nerves are one or two millimetres from the cancer. And so it's a matter of you go a millimetre one way, you take out the nerves, a millimetre the other way, you can leave cancer behind. So it's a really tricky, a bit like I was saying before, it's a unique surgery in that respect that, and that's why the robot, you know, 95% of the reuse of the robot around the world is radical prostatectomy still because it's quite a unique surgery that has all these demands of very fine margins for error, reconstruction, all these things. Um, so with and um, so it's really important we have a discussion I do with every patient beforehand about even in deciding what treatment they're going to have. What's your priorities, you know? Mm. How upset would you be if you lost your erections? If, you, if you'd be devastated by that and you've got a fairly low-risk cancer, you're probably better off having surveillance at least initially. Mm. There's no risk to your erections there. If you're not bothered at all then I can take a nice wide margin, guarantee can- or much more guarantee cancer clearance and we don't worry about your erections. And then most men are in between. So it's a tailored approach to every individual patient and often we'll be saying, okay, the main cancer's on the right so we're going to only spare the nerves a little bit there and go all out on the other side and save those nerves and you reduce your success rate a bit but you increase it. It's a good compromise. Yeah, it's always a balance and that changes with every single case so it's a – something a lot of thought goes into. And I'd imagine sort of depends where um, <clears throat> people are at in their life, as you're saying, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, and also yeah. how advanced the cancer is. I'm Correct. sure it gets to an age where, you know, if the can- if it, you know, the difference between, you know, living a life, mm. um, you know, yeah, people want to yeah. survive cancer, don't yeah, they, at the right. end of the day. So, yeah, it is really important. And I have a, a close relationship here with a sexual health practitioner who works here in the rooms and she will see people before surgery to talk about what's so-called penile rehabilitation or sexual mm. rehabilitation afterwards. And we can start that before before the surgery, even getting people in the best shape for it. And, again, preoperative weight loss is a big thing that we focus on. And one of the reasons for that is it makes the surgery easier so my chance of saving nerves increases. So your chance of erectile recovery increases. So that's, that's a, a good incentive big to thing. lose yeah. a bit and of weight. It, and it does incentivise people a lot. And then, again, Melissa, our sexual health uh, practitioner, will see these guys afterwards and work with them on an active rehabilitation process. So right from the first few weeks, they'll be on medication like Viagra to try and encourage some erectile recovery. There's other techniques including using a vacuum device, injections, and ultimately if none of those things work, we can put a penile prosthesis or implant in, which I do regularly for people, to recover you know, quite reasonable sexual function. So the discussion always is, our priorities are number one, get rid of the cancer. Mm. Number two, restore your bladder control, which you haven't talked about. Yeah. And number three, save your erections. And, and then what about bladder control? Yeah. So that's a important one. People, it's a massive thing. Yeah, yeah. People don't want to. Um, they want to be able to pee it. Yeah. At the end of the day, they so want to have pee and have control, and yeah. you know all these things are take for granted until suddenly yes. you don't have them. And and incontinence is quite a devastating mm. thing to live with. So. Um, Again, that's a big part of the pre-op discussion and the pre-op workup. So all my patients will see our physios here who are specialised in men's pelvic floor. Um, so it's not just a women. Not, not just women have to worry about pelvic floor. No, well, sort of what we're doing is converting the urinary tract anatomy of a man to a female, because the man, the prostate acts as a bit of a valve that probably holds back a lot of, or disperses a lot of the bladder pressure on the sphincter muscle. 
the male and female sphincter are actually quite similar, but men have got this big valve sitting above it and actually a secondary sphincter at the neck of the bladder where the prostate joins the bladder. Those two things are removed and suddenly they've got this little sphincter to work on to hold back their urine. And often, yeah, they're in the same position as their wives at the same age who've only had that sphincter to deal with. So you can improve that. So wherever possible, we give people four to six weeks of preoperative physio to their pelvic floor muscles and then it's really important afterwards. So the typical thing, one visit before, maybe two or three, four visits in the months after the surgery to regain the bladder control. And my own figures from my own database are that 5% of my patients will come to needing corrective surgery for incontinence. So 95% over time will regain continence with the help of the physios and nothing else. And that can take anywhere from there's a number who are dry immediately, more often it's a month or two, and there's a few take three to six months. If it's six months out, they're still leaking, wearing pads in their underwear, then we start talking about correction. And that's a really important point for people who might listen to this who've had prostate cancer treatment is that incontinence need not be accepted after radical prostatectomy. You know, Mm. there is a – my practice is a bit unusual in that I do both the cancer surgery but the corrective Mm. surgery. Most people would do one or the other. And so probably my patients get offered corrective surgery for incontinence more often and a bit earlier than through a surgeon who doesn't do that. Do you think people accept – Incontinence, and they say, "Oh, I just have to." Well, they're kind of told to. They're kind of given the idea quite often that this is well, your PSA zero, your cancer's gone. What are you? What are you complaining about? Yeah, Yeah, you should be lucky. But the guy's now sitting there, you know, wearing five pads a day and doesn't go out anymore with his mates because he's embarrassed. It's not a uh, quality of life. They can't travel and do all this. You know, you hear stories of people who travel or they stop travelling because the wife said, "I'm sick of it." We take two suitcases of pads and one small bag of clothes. That's no no way to be. So, and it's just absolutely not something people need to accept. So, correction of it often it's just some physio. A lot of people haven't had proper physio. That's not that common either. A lot of people don't get it. uh, Get physio beforehand. So, is that another reason why sometimes it's you know it does? There's nothing stopping them from having a chat to a GP and saying, "Can I go and see a urologist to have these sort of discussions?" Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes. They might not know what's out there. What's yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. And a lot of GPs even. Yeah, so I it's spend hard a lot to of time doing of yeah educational things to GPs, as well as the public to try and just get the message that you don't have to put up with these either incontinence or erectile dysfunction. They can both be really well addressed. They're not inevitable consequence of your prostate cancer treatment. So um, and they're not an inevitable. Fact of aging as well. You know, no, you see no, the ads no. on the telly, and it's like, oh, that's no. my life. My no. life will have to be like that at seventy or eighty, or no. in the sixties. And you know, and mm. I think, well, no, you know, there's help the available for to- those things, and it's very successful. So it's it's a very uh, very unusual situation where we can't correct incontinence after prostate tre- cancer treatment. Very unusual. There's a few where it just you know, for whatever reason, it's too bad, and it is another problem if, if someone's had radiation, for example, and gets incontinence, that's more challenging to fix but, again, can usually be sorted out. Um, But these are all reasons to go right back to the beginning of our Mm. conversation, which is screening. The earlier these things are picked up and treated, the less any of these issues actually come into play, you know. So let's talk about any other myths and misconceptions about prostate cancer. What what have you heard when when people come through your doors? Um, Gee, lots of things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, look, the main one is probably that it's all um, diet, 
related and that no symptoms means no cancer. I think those two things. And third, oh, the third, the big one is, you know, men die oh, with prostate cancer, not from it. Mm. Now, that's just not true. It's, it's well, it's a true statement about a certain number of men. So if you, and it's, it's all based on a really pretty small and not that well-conducted study in the 50s in the UK where a pathologist went and examined the prostates of about 10 or 15, 90-year-olds, 80, 90-year-olds who died of other things and found, lo and behold, there's a bit of cancer in their prostates. Therefore, everyone's got prostate cancer and they don't die of it. I think 80% of the 80-year-olds had something they could find. And that's based on 1950s pathology, which is certainly nothing like it is today, and didn't really mean much. It was a tiny number of guys. The fact is in Australia, you know, two and a half to 3,000 men a year die of prostate cancer, which is similar to the number of women dying of breast cancer. It, it, you know, and only colorectal and lung cancer are ahead of it in terms of causes of cancer death in Australia for men. In fact, lung, lung's probably on the decline. Prostate will be the second most common soon. So it's a really important disease. That's probably the most important myth to dispel is that mm. it's not a – there are forms of it. There's a form of it that's not le- not dangerous and not lethal and nowadays we recognise that really well and they often have surveillance and do very well. But there's the other two-thirds who actually really gain a lot from treatment and there's no doubt that early treatment – uh, with surgery or radiation really does translate to a reduction in deaths. And and if you take a man who's otherwise healthy at 65 who's got an intermediate or high-grade prostate cancer, the most likely cause of his death is prostate cancer and it'll be some years, 10 perhaps, less than what he would have lived, be expected to live. So, And it's a miserable way to go as well. It's mm. not a, It's not like a heart attack where you fall asleep and don't wake up. It's a five-year process of deterioration and very unpleasant. So it's... Um, so if you can prevent it and It's really be- worth preventing, you know, and the, I guess one of the myths or the things to, to, to break down is that, as with all cancer screening, you know, having a PSA test does not mean you're automatically going to be impotent and incontinent. In fact, mm. that's, that's really the minority. Most guys have a PSA test, there'll be nothing to worry about. And then there'll be a group who need evaluation and then some of those will have cancer and some of those will need treatment, but those numbers get smaller and smaller. So, you know, it's really important to, um, if you are someone who's going to con- contract a, or develop a bad form of prostate cancer, that it gets picked up early so you've got options and can avoid them really unpleasant problems that occur after it. I'd say that's the main, the most important myth to get rid of would be the, the fact that it's not a dangerous disease. Yeah. And then from all the men that you treat um, and you've been practising a while, mm. you know, is there a patient story that people could learn from mm. that was sort of early diagnosis? Yeah, there's probably there's probably a couple. Um, I mean, one I mentioned earlier was a guy who, um, you know, he was diagnosed, I think actually originally diagnosed at age 34 based on a, family history, took himself off to be tested, got diagnosed with a low-risk cancer initially, was watched, and then a couple of years later, two, perhaps three years later, you know, still in his mid to late 30s, cancer was progressing, so he came out, his prostate removed. And uh, in fact, I've got a couple of guys like that, young guys, you know, And was he single 40. as well? And no, he was married. married and, yeah. uh, really interesting guy. 
uh, real character actually, and um, we became quite good friends after it all. But in fact, he was the subject of a story on the seven thirty report, oh, right. which people can still go and look at. Yeah, um, be able to look that up. It was yeah. probably ten years ago now, but and he did extremely well. So he he got rid of his cancer, recovered his you know erectile and urinary function really well, and was nothing but delighted about it, and became a real advocate then for screening screening through his. Um, work in the music industry and other things he was involved with, he became a real mm. advocate for it. So, you know, you see stories like that. I've got another another similar young guy who's now a real advocate and runs men's um, prostate cancer help groups and so on. Oh, that's good. Um, Do you find they're worthwhile for men to talk to other men for about? For sure, yeah. yeah. It can make a big difference. For Some guys don't want to talk about it and others really do and, you see people's really change as they go through this process, they really change in the way they relax and open up about all this stuff that normally would be very private and a lot of them wouldn't mm. want to talk about. Um, it's probably a good thing that yeah, we start, men yeah. start talking more openly yeah. about what's so they, going on. Those are probably positive ones. On the other side is the ones you see where unfortunately they've been through that process where they've had screening and it's not been addressed. And then they've presented at a very late stage and, you know, they've got bad disease and it's really much harder to deal with. So if you are thinking about being on active surveillance, yep. should it involve a urologist or will it always involve a urologist? Yeah, 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 definitely. Okay. Um, so it's really important. And, and it is important because I think yeah. some people might think, oh, well, it's just something they can manage with their GP, but it really should involve a urologist. Well, the G your GP can't make a diagnosis of prostate cancer unless you've got, you know, PSA of 2000 and, you know, a scan showing you've got disease all through your body. That's a different matter. But in the main, uh, a GP can't and won't attempt to diagnose a prostate cancer. What they'll do is screen you and identify your risk and then refer you on for diagnosis. Once you're diagnosed, the GP in active surveillance has a really important role to play because they see the guys regularly and it can become part of their regular health screening once it's established and the pathway's established and it's stabilised. So now, typically now, and guys have been on it, let's say, after two years of me seeing them regularly, the next step will be I'll, for maybe another couple of years, share it with the GP. So I'll see them once a year and the GP sees them in the six months in between and the GP has guidelines to react if things have changed at six months to get them back to me sooner. And then eventually, if we're five years out and the guy's now 80 years old and a, nothing's happening and they've got a good GP who's really interested and um, they'll uh, the GP can then take it over. So it's a, it's a real team approach. It's a gradual thing, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm always, you know, on tap. And most people who are on active surveillance, at some point I'll see them again for something or other. Yeah. And the GPs know that they can get them back any time. So... Oh, that's good yeah, to know. That's, that's, I think it's important to oh, clarify really important. that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you can't just, for example, have a PSA, even maybe a GP organise an MRI and, oh, you've got cancer, we're going to active surveillance. That's not appropriate. That's not the that's not correct way to run it. You've got to first make sure that can you've got a cancer first and secondly that it's one that's suitable for active surveillance. And Absolutely. that's that's, you know, a certain percentage are. What are sort of three takeaway messages we all should know about prostate yeah, cancer? Yeah, okay. Um well, I think the most important one is that it's not an insignificant disease, that it does cause a lot of morbidity and, and mortality in Australia every year. And, and the men going through that are often very active and fit guys, you know. So that's the first thing is that don't, don't believe that it's a insignificant cancer that old men 
have and die of something else. It's it's there's a large number of younger men with a lot of life ahead of them who get struck down by prostate cancer. Um, leading on from that, that early diagnosis can avert that pathway. So early diagnosis is available. It's very accurate. It doesn't inevitably lead to disabling surgery. In fact, for 40% of men diagnosed, it'll lead to observation and many of those guys will stay with that forever and never need intervention. But at least they know where they're at and they know what their risk is and they're taken care of. And then those who do have a significant cancer that needs treatment, there are options which they'll have a strong say in which one they end up having and that when those options are delivered, you know, by experts who, who um, do it properly, uh, outcomes are excellent, whether that's surgery or radiation, um, you know, in the right hands with the right approach and care taken and good follow-up, outcomes are great. So, you know, quality of life after treatment for prostate cancer is um, generally can be very is, – is very good, should be very good. And probably leading on from that, in men who've had treatment and don't have a good quality life outcome, don't accept that as your lot. You know, that can be, in the great majority, corrected very well. So thank you for your time tonight. Good. No, my pleasure. A big thank you to Dr. Sofield for sharing his knowledge with us today on Meditalk. And to learn more about Dr. Sofield and St. John of God Hospital Subiaco, visit sgog.org.au and perthreconstructiveurology.com.au. If you feel this podcast episode can help a friend or a family member, please share, as sharing knowledge empowers our lives and the lives of others. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to write a quick review on Apple Podcasts. To listen to more episodes of Meditalk, visit meditalk.com.au and if you have any medical conditions you would like to learn more about, please send me an email via danae at meditalk.com.au. Stay well and thank you for listening.